Hey, it's Sarah. That's What She Said is presented by Coors Light, the beer made to chill. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Be sure to check out the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny. This week, Mina and ESPN's Courtney Cronin tackled the NFC North and discussed the season outlook for the Vikings, Lions, Packers, and my Chicago Bears. Please be nice, ladies. You can find the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My name is Ittihaj Muhammad. I'm an Olympic medalist, entrepreneur, and activist, and my big dilemma is racial inequality. Oh, but if I could fix this, uh, and I'll tell you, my experiences on social media have made it all the more clear to me how much of a problem this is. I mean, of course, you can watch the news on any given day, particularly right now with the civil unrest in our country. But um, really, I, I had surrounded myself with these smart and evolved and thoughtful people for so long that it wasn't until I started doing this job and being um, on Internet spaces so often with strangers and with trolls and awful people that I realized truly how how pervasive and awful the issue of, of racial inequality and racism is in our country and how many want it to remain that way. I think I, I thought it was the, the farthest outskirts, but uh, the way some of the ideas that are more pervasive than flat out obvious racism affect people of color in our country and the way people would like to keep it that way because of the way it benefits them, uh, it's been really eye-opening. And ever since this latest civil unrest, I've tasked myself with educating myself. So. Instead of being able to fix your dilemma, I'm going to say that the only fix is for a large number of people, predominantly white people, to care enough to educate themselves, to really understand the history of race in our country, to really understand what it means to be privileged and how it's it's not a matter of how easy you've had it, but more so that your skin color has not been one of the barriers to your success, uh, to really understand how our current uh, country is built uh, in ways that isn't equal. Um, that's the best I can say is that we all task ourselves with getting more educated and doing the right thing and becoming anti-racist and allies in ways that go beyond simply sitting at home and believing ourselves to be on the right side of things. That's the best I can do. The commission has spoken. My guest this week is Ibtihaj Muhammad. She's a retired member of the U.S. fencing team, bronze medalist in the 2016 Olympics, the first Muslim-American woman to wear a hijab while competing for the U.S. in the Olympics, the first female Muslim-American athlete to earn a medal at the Olympics, New York Times bestselling author and speaker, one of 2016 Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, and she has her own Barbie. That's right. I love talking to her. She is brilliant and insightful and thoughtful. Um, and we got into a whole lot of stuff, um, how she never felt like she fully belonged to uh, her Muslim faith because uh, of being a black American, never really felt like she was able to identify with her blackness the same way because the hijab made faith sort of her primary identity. She talked about how she happened upon fencing and found a family there. All sorts of issues of, of dealing with uh, with both religious and racial prejudices, including, you know, removing her last name from resumes and getting interviews. Um, getting harassed and followed after fencing practices, uh, how she recently had to speak up to out a fencing coach, predominant fencing coach, uh, who said that uh, Abraham Lincoln made a mistake in freeing the slaves uh, and how this is still occurring in, in this in this year. 
uh, what it's like to have a policeman father in 2020 during all of this. Uh, her recent arrest in L.A., really harrowing story about being arrested while protesting. And also talked about doing uh, Share the Mic Now and taking over Alex Morgan's Instagram. We got into all sorts of good stuff. I really hope you guys enjoyed the interview. She's great. Well, that's what she said. I'm so excited to have Ibtihaj Muhammad on the podcast. In fact, it's been months and months in the making. A very busy woman, this lady. Uh, but perhaps now that she's no longer competing, a little bit more time. Um, but something tells me she will keep herself uh, incredibly busy, uh, even without competing in the Olympics and, and training. Um, Ibtihaj, I'm so excited to talk to you uh, because I think there's just a, just a confluence of events right now that make you a particularly powerful and meaningful voice to hear from. Uh, but before we get into right now, let's go back a ways and kind of talk about how you became who you are. You were, uh, grew up in New Jersey. African-American uh, descent and your, your parents uh, converted to Islam. So how old were you or were you were, were they already uh, Muslim when you were born? Uh, my parents converted to Islam in the 70s. Um, so my siblings and I were all born into the faith. Okay. So you're growing up in New Jersey. Um, you obviously aren't wearing a hijab at a very young age, but um, you adopted fairly early. Um, and so it's noticeable to you growing up, um, that you, um, are different, that there's something different about you. At what age did you become aware of, uh, the ways that being Muslim would affect sort of your, your, not just outward appearance, but maybe in the ways that people would react to you? Well, I grew up, uh, in a town called Maplewood. It's about 30 minutes west of New York city. And to be honest, it's been it was a really inclusive space to to be raised. I um I went through the same school district from kindergarten all the way through twelfth grade. So I was around the same kids for my whole life. And it wasn't until I would say I started high school sports um that I noticed my hijab in particular, had uh, the power to change how people treated me. Hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, my I started wearing hijab at 12, like full-time. I started wearing it uh, at 12. And when even just kind of figuring out what sport I would play, my parents were trying to find a sport where they didn't have to like uh, add to the uniform when I played. I mean, when I ran track, when I played tennis and all those things as a kid, my teammates wore tank tops or shorts and I would wear like a short sleeve t-shirt or I would add spandex or something to, to the team uniform. And when I got to high school and it was this day in day out organized sport that I was playing, uh, whether it was volleyball in the fall, fencing in the winter, or softball in the spring, um, I was always in, especially in volleyball and uh, in softball, I was in different uniform than everyone else in the sense that I was fully covered. And um, I noticed that when it came to referees or even when it came to kids from other schools, uh, whether it would be staring or specific comments about the my hijab and the way that I was dressed, it can be a, a really, um, it creates an ostracizing feeling, uh, especially I think for, for a young kid, but it definitely makes you aware of 
the way that, you know, you will be treated going forward in a sense that this, my hijab was this identifying object that kind of separated me from other people. Right. It's interesting um, because, you know, you, you said Maplewood was very welcoming and kind of diverse enough to feel um, a part of the community. Um, I wonder if when you were younger, if you identified most or felt like you were um, seen most as a black American. And then it, when you started wearing the hijab, if the primary thing that people thought about you was now your being Muslim, your faith. I don't know if I have conscious memories of race as a kid. When I look back on the way things panned out or the way, um, whether it be like really small things, the way like maybe a teacher treated me versus maybe like one of my white friends or uh, coaches or even different interactions or, or uh, events that may have happened as a kid. I didn't think of it from the perspective of race. I never really got a full grasp of what that looked like until I faced those issues head on and I had an, I had the opportunity to really understand why they were happening. Um, and, really understanding our history as African-Americans in this country and how the events that happened 400 years ago and that have continued to happen for centuries really shaped that narrative and, and these situations that I was experiencing as a young person. Mm. So you define fencing and discover that this is a sport where the uniform doesn't have to change. Uh, you're, you're quite covered. Um, that feels like you're being funneled into something that's functional. How long or was it immediate for you to actually like love it and, and, and not feel like it was a default? Well, I, when I looked at fencing, um, so my mom and I actually discovered fencing by chance. We were on a road in town. We saw fencers in the school cafeteria from our car. And my mom was like, I don't know what that sport is, but I want you to try it. And it was, mm -hmm simply because the athletes were covered. And so when I did my own research, this is eighth grade before I started high school, I noticed that the top 10 universities in the country all had fencing teams. And as a kid who was extremely academically driven, I knew right away that I had to play the sport because I wanted to separate myself from other people when I you know, uh, would go on to apply for colleges. And when I joined the fencing team, there were, to me it was, an immediate difference from any other team I'd ever been a part of in that it was a it was a space where everyone there felt more like family than it did um, like a sports team. Hmm. And as an athlete who fenced for Columbia High School, coached Columbia High School, my sister came through the Columbia High School fencing program as well. Um, I've never experienced a team like this in my life. And it was, I don't know if that stems from it just being this championship, you know, winning program and this really strong program. It's, I would argue that it's, you know, historically the best fencing program in the country. I'm not sure if it's because of its success uh, that, um, you know, uh, that's why that kind of, that bond and it kind of forged these bonds for kids. I'm not sure, but um, it's just a, a space where, it felt like I was around like family members and yeah. it wasn't about 
whether or not you were providing tangible wins for the team. It was about us all the time. I mean, these are kids who were not on varsity, who may have been managers or team armors or who literally just came to be a part of the team, but um, just to help out, not necessarily like on the varsity team. It was like everybody had a role to play in helping the team be successful. And I think that that early on helped me understand my own place in sport and that it had nothing to do with gender or your faith um, or your ethnicity. It was really about, you know, kind of uplifting this team and together we, we could, we could be successful. And I think that that program really embodies what sport is all about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you're, you're fencing in high school and you've already got it in your mind that it might be an avenue towards uh, participating at the next level. Um, But, you know, you're in the midst of, of learning the sport and and thriving in it when you join the Peter Westbrook foundation, uh, which is incredible. I hadn't really heard about Peter Westbrook, but he was the first um, African-American fencer to win a medal in the Olympics and decided to um, train, uh, young people in underserved communities uh, in the sport. Um, there's an elite athlete program. So that's an offshoot of it, right? And that's the part mm-hmm. that you were involved in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was, I think, 16. And I was at a local fencing competition. A parent of another athlete who happened to be white told me, you know, there's black kids who fence in New York City, you should check it out. And I remember in that moment, like it being a very jarring moment for me, because um, within the sport, it was, it was this constant thing of, you know, you are different from us. And whether that be for religious reasons or because I was the only black kid in the room or because I was the only hijabi in the room, um, that, that moment stuck with me because I went home and I told my parents about it. I remember, you know, going to Google and looking up this, this program, you know, black people in New York city fencing. And when I discovered the foundation, it was, uh, this moment, I remember walking into the room, there's 200 kids learning how to fence every single Saturday um, at this program. And I remember walking in and seeing athletes who were on Olympic teams, world championship teams, NCAA champions, people who traveled the world and done so much in sport. And for me, I didn't know anything but high school fencing, using fencing as a tool to go to a good university. Um, so seeing athletes who had done so much and had you know, taking it all the way to the Olympic Games, it was this really pivotal moment in my fencing career because it allowed me to unconsciously grasp my aspirations in the sport. Hmm. I had no intention on becoming a professional athlete, even uh, while I was at while I was at university at Duke. But it's really interesting how um, sport can take you places that you don't expect. And um, having Peter as Peter Westbrook as a mentor. And understanding that his journey really laid the the foundation and um, the groundwork for me to exist in sport was just this really moving moment for me as a kid. So you end up at Duke, uh, where you fence, you were a three-time All-American, a junior Olympic champion, while getting dual degrees in international relations and African and African-American studies. So a total overachiever at all times. (laughs) While you're competing at Duke, did it become clear that there was a possibility that you could become a professional and p- potentially try to go to the Olympics? Oh, absolutely not. I, college was tough for me because I, 
I, I feel like college has three pieces for student athletes. It's like you have your uh, your academic life, your athletic life, and you have your social life. And it's really difficult to balance all three. And for my first three years at Duke, I was doing the academic athletic thing and didn't have a social life at all. And I decided I wanted to study abroad. I decided that I wanted to have like friends in a social life. So I stopped fencing. I actually didn't didn't fence my senior year at Duke. And also it was a it was a difficult space for me as the only a minority on the team. And um, I think that I had had my fill of kind of uh, being that 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 one athlete. Um, and also I was in anything that I do, I'm super like, you know, uh, driven. I have my foot on the gas pedal at all times. And my experience at Duke, uh, on the Duke fencing team specifically, it wasn't like that. The other athletes didn't have the same driver. And not that everyone has to, um, but it was difficult for me. If I want to practice, I can't, I can't practice by myself. I mean, yeah, you have moments as, as a fencer that you do, but there is, um, a piece of the sport that is dependent on you having a training partner. And I didn't have that. Uh, so I decided not to fence my senior year. And um, when I graduated from Duke, I graduated in the middle of, of the 2007 recession. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go to law school. I was taking LSAT classes, um, applying, and I also was fencing. I was looking for a job as a paralegal had the hardest time finding a job in corporate America. I have no idea why that was. I mean, I don't know if it was because of my hijab. I don't know if it was because I was an African-American woman. I have no idea. But I know that when I took my last, and this is a, a very, I would say a weaker moment in my life. I decided to take my last name from my resume, my last hmm. name was Muhammad. And I took my last name from my resume and immediately I got, you know, tons and tons of interviews just by removing my last name. Hmm. And um, then I realized when I get to these interviews for the people who weren't going to hire me because of my last name, them seeing my hijab was not going to change, you know, <laughs> the way they felt. So um, that was a swing and a miss on my part. But I feel like that moment had, those moments had to happen in order for me to be redirected into sport because I, my parents were like, you, you can't just, you know, um, you can't just sit here and you like study for the L like you need to get a job. So I started working at a dollar store um, and I started training, to be honest. And that was really just to keep sane. I think that sport has always been this, this, this vehicle in my life that, um, that kind of helps me uh, really kind of be who I am. Like, I don't know who I am without being active. I don't know who I am without, without kind of utilizing that. Uh, I don't know the vehicle sport. Like I work yeah. out every single day and yeah. I'm sure you're the same, like just having that athletic background. It was just really natural to me to start training. Not that I had a goal, but um, I had never been to an international competition. I had never been to a senior competition before. I had no ranking at all, but I knew that when I looked at, Team USA and this was in you know 2008 I looked at Team USA and there had never been an African-American woman there had never been a woman of color period on the woman's saber team and that's the weapon that I fence and as a problem solver I've been like this my whole life I just was just like that's kind of crazy and I don't know I just I decided that I wanted to make a national team and it was simply because I knew that there were obstacles 
that existed within my sport that didn't allow for people like me to exist. That made it kind of harder, harder for us to kind of climb the ranks of the sport. And um, I don't know if it's ever been about me. I think that it's, for me, it's always been about us. Like, how do I create spaces for, you know, the, the little girl um, who has been told no, who's been told that she can't exist in this space or who doesn't see herself in this space. And yeah. so uh, I switched coaches. I grew up with, at the Peter Westbrook Foundation, I had this awful coach who I feel like was super misogynistic. Um, I, I honestly, I look back and think how, did our parents how did how did the people in charge allow this person to exist around us as kids you know the the way that he he spoke to the girls in the program he would tell us we had to lose weight you know that we weren't fast enough we weren't strong enough he's very dismissive of our abilities and as an adult I saw that and I was like I can't work with this person so I switched coaches I switched to a guy who um, was on the 2000 Sydney team and the first day I started working with Aki, he said, you know, you can be one of the best fencers in the world. Wow. And this was someone who literally saw my work ethic, work ethic and my athletic ability. And even though I didn't have the rankings um, to necessarily carry or provide any real, um, any real backing to that statement of being the best in the world, I feel like he just believed in me. And that was really one of in the, my first time in my adult life having someone tell me that I could be great at my sport and not that I didn't believe it. I've always been a person who's like, you know, um, I can have what I want if I just work hard for it. So I don't think that I was missing that piece of like uh, the personal belief. I think that having a supportive coach was just another piece of the puzzle that I needed to be successful. And that very next year after switching coaches, I made my first national team. And it was just really this, this roller coaster or this ride that I got on uh, back in, you know, 2008, 2009 that I just never got off of. And it wasn't my intention to become a professional athlete. It wasn't my intention to necessarily go to the Olympics, but um, I found that the, mo the harder I worked, the more I, I dedicated myself, the better I was getting. And I don't know, I just, I, it's like a, it's a, you know, you set small goals for yourself, or at least that's just kind of the way I operate. I'm not really a big picture person. I'm like, I'm going to take it step by step. And the steps got bigger. You know, the, the, an Olympic team was, I think that the end goal, you know, it was something that I feel like I needed to do because I needed there to be representation on this team. And I think the Olympic medal was just icing on the cake. To be honest, yeah. it's still one of those things in my life that I can't believe happened. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Just the icing. Um, so you joined the U.S. national fencing team in 2010. Um, you were number two in the U.S., number seven in the world in 2017, uh, five-time senior world medalist, 2014 world champion, 2016 bronze medalist at the Olympics with the team. Um, what was interesting was your run of really becoming this, you know, public figure that people recognized and knew the excitement around your qualification for the Olympics and that you compete in a hijab, all of that came 
around the same time as President Trump's executive order banning travel from majority Muslim countries. The travel ban that it was very clear the intent of, even if the semantics around it were to imply that it was not about faith. Um, and that became sort of, it, it forced you into a role that perhaps, even though you knew you wanted to represent, uh, maybe you weren't really planning for, which was being um by your very existence in opposition to what our president was preaching. How much mm -hmm. added pressure did that give you as just, I mean, you're competing in your first Olympics. You're already going to do a million interviews about being a black fencer, about being a Muslim fencer. And now you have this extreme push toward um, anti-faith, you know, verbiage and anti-faith actions, ac mm -hmm. actions, excuse me, within your own country. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I qualified it was shocking, right? I qualified in February, I'll never forget, 2016. I came home from a World Cup that I just won bronze at. We got home from Athens. And I was just going through the regular, like, motions of any athlete, scheduling training, scheduling, like, massage therapy appointments and that sort of thing, PT sessions. And when I realized that I qualified just through a tweet or a, a Google alert through Team USA Fencing, um, I feel like it was in that moment I realized that I had the opportunity to change the narrative for my community. And that's not just not necessarily um, for, you know, African-Americans within the sport of fencing, but for Muslims globally. Right. Because when people think about a Muslim woman, they don't think of her as being an athlete. They don't think of her as being non-Arab. Um, and they certainly don't think of her as being an Olympian. So. I knew this is an opportunity to flip that that age-old narrative onto its head and to push back against the things that we see depicted of the Muslim community uh, in Hollywood, that we see depicted of us through media, uh, through our evening news. And I just felt like this was an opportunity. And even though I knew it would be an uphill battle um, and it would be kind of an additive to the already you know, surmounting pressure of just competing at the Olympics. Uh, I felt like this, this was, this is it. This is what you have to do. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, I knew from the very first Team USA Media Day that I had a role that I had to play, whether I liked it or not. I remember one of the questions I got was about, um, you know, what country are you from? <laughs> and this was like, you know, with dozens and dozens of microphones in my face. The, the and presumably asked, dozens and dozens of American flags around you since you're right. representing I'm, I'm the United States. <laughs> I'm literally wearing my a team, uh, an Olympic team warm up. And I, that was my first time ever wearing the rings in my life because I was a firm believer that you wear the rings once you make the team. So I had on Olympic you know, like an Olympic warm up for the first time in my life. And I had a reporter ask me and constantly push back. He was a guy, a white guy. What country are you from? What country are you from? And I remember I asked him, I said, <laughs> are you familiar with African-American history in this country? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm from the United States. My ancestors were forcibly bought here, you know, in 1619. I'm, um, I'm as, as American as it gets. I don't have another country to claim. Right. That's it. And I wouldn't be able to because of the manner in which my ancestors were brought over. I can't tell you right. where they're from because I was denied the opportunity to know that. Thank you very yeah. little, mister. <laughs> right. I mean, and it was crazy. I felt like it was like a mortifying moment for him. But 
I mean, even when you think about the trauma that exists within the black community to ha- to be at, especially as a Muslim, I mean, being black and Muslim, it's this weird intersection that exists where you are not black enough for the black community and you are not Muslim enough for the Muslim community. And so mm-hmm. to be asked within the Muslim community, you know, when did you convert? Super triggering. Um, right. Or to pe- for people to assume that you converted to the faith. But also, you know, when you're black, um, you know, for, or in Muslim, for people to assume that you're from some, say you're from the Middle East, right? And that how could you possibly be these two things? You know, you're like a unicorn, but people don't see it. Like we all think of unicorns as being positive. People don't certainly don't um, see it as being a positive thing, but I feel like uh, those questions can be really traumatic. Yeah. And um, anyway, I just felt like this moment of existing on Team USA and living at these different intersections, it was an opportunity for me to be a window into my community for people to see the, the the amazing things about my community and to challenge this this really dark awful narrative that's been created but also to be a lens you know for us to see ourselves not just as you know African Americans to see ourselves in, in spaces where for a really long time we weren't welcome and we still aren't welcome but also for Muslims to see ourselves and thrive in spaces and say that, you know, we can challenge even our cultural norms and exist and, and be good at what, you know, these, these different things that we're doing. Your existence as a member of the team, as a Black Muslim fencer who meddled, all of it was inspiring and empowering. And the overwhelming message for anyone who was not bigoted was that this is an incredible positive. But you weren't Pollyanna-ish in the way that you approached this opportunity and this platform. You even, when talking about the Olympics and talking about the United States, said that you did not feel safe as a Muslim living in America. You didn't downplay the fears and the troubles of your identity within this country simply because you were representing it, which I think is incredibly powerful, but you got backlash for that. And I wonder um, how you felt did it feel like people were denying the reality of your like lived existence and experiences or did it feel more like people just didn't want to hear it in that moment? Like how did you receive the idea that people would criticize you speaking honestly about your experience? Well, interestingly enough, that comment was totally taken out of context. (laughs) Not that it wasn't true, but I was coming home from practice after I qualified for the U S Olympic team. Uh, my club is on 28th and 7th in New York City, a few blocks from Penn Station. And I would walk from 28th and 7th down to Madison Square Garden and catch the train back to New Jersey. And this is like 9.30 at night. I'm walking with a teammate. And a man approached me on the street yelling expletives, telling me that he, he you know, believed I was suspicious, that I was carrying a bomb. He said that he was going to call the police and he followed me from 28th and 7th to Penn Station. And as this man's following me, I'm looking for the police, right? Because I don't know if he's going to hit me, if he has a weapon. I I don't know any of those things. But I know that that moment, you know, was on the heels of this this, uh, proposed Muslim ban. Back then, it was still like this proposed ban. And I... Like I believed back then, I still believe now that Trump has exposed and unearthed a very bigoted America where people feel so comfortable being racist 
right? And discriminating and being open, being open about it. Not that I don't believe these things existed, you know, pre-Trump, but I feel like now it's okay, right? To, to target people and to kill people, right? To, um, to, to be discriminatory and to be bigoted. And so when I was interviewed about that incident and asked, if I felt safe, I said, absolutely not. You know, would you feel safe with someone following you and attacking you? Especially, you know, this guy who tower, who towered over me. And here I was, you know, like sweaty and drenched from practice, just trying to get home. So people ran with that. They're like U.S. Olympian, like who wears hijab doesn't feel safe in this country. And it's like, you know, damn straight. No, I don't feel safe when someone's following me home. I don't feel safe when someone's yelling expletives and, you know, threatening me and, and accusing me of carrying a bomb simply because I wore hijab. And for people who, you know, feel so triggered that how could, you know, um, a minority, how could, you know, this woman who wears hijab who's black, how could she not feel safe? And it's like, even now, show me an instance where as someone who's black, as someone who's Muslim, as someone who's a woman, tell me when I should feel safe when, Mm -hmm. because we've created spaces where people can literally commit crimes, where we can lynch people and not face any rep- repercussion for our actions. How? How are people supposed to feel safe? Yeah, and you have sort of a triple whammy there because just being a woman, I, I, I was talking to somebody on social media the other day, a black man who said, I don't want to say this, but I don't know at this point which white people I can trust. So in order to protect myself, I sort of have to assume that everyone might do me harm until I know otherwise. And I said, I could never understand what it is to be black. But as a woman, unfortunately, I often feel the same way. I sort of have to approach every strange man that I don't know with the caution Mm -hmm. that they might want to do me harm. And so for you, it's being a woman, it's being black, it's being Muslim. And the fact that um, none of those can be hidden. Right. And that's the interesting conversation that we all have about the intersections of bigotry. Right. Um, In a conversation, a dinner party with a handful of of people of all different backgrounds. Um, My my husband's old boss, a white gay man, was talking to a colleague of mine who's a black man and just said, if I walk around the world, there is no true and you know certain indication that I'm gay. I just get mm-hmm. to be the privilege of a, of a white man um, mm-hmm. and you can't take off your skin. Um, and so mm-hmm. for you, because of the hijab, that third element, that faith element is visible instead of just um, being something that you know. And so that's, that's you know, three ways in which you can visibly be targeted by people. Um, I wonder if you have noticed significantly in the last couple years during the Trump presidency, which many people would point to as um, having given people more comfortability and, and enabled them to feel more comfortable being outwardly racist, if you've noticed your treatment in this country has changed. I think so. Um, I think so, for sure. I, I I've always said and maintained that it is harder now for the Muslim community than it was after 9-11. Wow. Right. It's harder for, and I, again, I mean, I was a kid when 9-11 happened, so I'm sure my perspective is a bit skewed, but I, I feel like it is so difficult just to exist, right. As a Muslim. I mean, it's, it's even difficult to exist as a black person. It's super triggering for me to even see the cops. You feel your heart rate go up. Mm-hmm. And this is coming from 
a person whose dad was a cop my entire life. My dad retired as a drug detective in North New Jersey. Um, so I was not raised to fear police. I, you know, all my memories of my dad as a kid are of him in a police uniform. Um, and I genuinely believe police is like police or law enforcement's job is to protect and serve. So now to really think twice, if anything, God forbid, ever happened to me, I would think twice before calling the police on anyone, right? Because I would wonder if, especially if that person is a person of color, um, would they live, right? Would I live? Would I be seen as, as the villain in that moment? I don't know. So um, do what? You know, like you, I feel like it's this constant back and forth that exists where, uh, you know, you just genuinely don't feel safe. And when I look back on my career in sport, and I was having this conversation with one of them, one of my teammates, you know, uh, within the sport of fencing, we've had things happen over the years, but recently uh, we had a coach who was recorded on a Zoom call saying that. Um, black people, or that Lincoln made a mistake in in freeing. In freeing I saw the story. Yeah, I actually have yeah. the I have the quote because I was going to ask you about it. A St. John's assistant fencing coach, he'd been there since 2006. Um, mm -hmm. During a virtual chat, said of the social unrest around George Floyd's death, "quote Because the most troubles coming from where." from black people because they don't want to work. They steal, they kill, they do drugs. Everything comes from the majority. I think, uh, what's his name? Lincoln made a mistake. Mm -hmm. How did you find out about that quote? Um, it was, a, there's a video that was circulating with, with around the fencing community. And because of the backlash, that I think a lot of athletes felt like they would face in naming the person because we all knew who he was um and even posting the video people were so afraid especially those who still compete because it's a, it's a subjective sport you you won't know whose point is scored unless the referee tells you where, where, where the point went if both lights come on you're waiting for a referee to tell you whose points it is so because of the subjectivity of the sport because you know the a lot of our coaches are from the former Soviet Union because most of our coaches are white. A lot of people are afraid to even speak out against racism in the way that it exists in our mm -hmm. sport. So nobody wanted to post it. Nobody wanted to air it out. The club in which this guy fences is the club I grew up at, uh, the Fencers Club in New York City. They sent out an email and suspended him. They weren't even going to fire him. Wow. So I felt like wow. I had to... I had to, in that moment use my platform to air it out because I'm like, we cannot allow people like this to exist in our sport. This is part of the problem. When I look at the, even the program that this man coaches at at St. John's, every single coach that they have is white. Every single athletic scholarship over the last 10 years that they've been given, I would say 95% of them are given not only to white people, but are given to European athletes. Why is that? How? There are so many people deserving athletes, really, really strong athletes who are deserving of not only athletic scholarships, but spots on that team and are not given the opportunity to fence in that program 
And now that, you know, this man's words, Boris Vaxman is his, is his name, now that his words have come to light and we know that he is a bigot, we know that he is a racist, it makes you wonder the validity of that program and yeah. its existence. And how many people lost opportunities in the past or, or you know, all, yeah, it's, what, it's... One of my best friends competed at that, in that program and she wasn't given stipend. She was a, uh, she was a um, scholarship athlete, but wasn't given a stipend and told that she had to work work study. And the European athletes didn't, who also had scholarship, did not have to work, have, have to work work study. And she was told they would get a stipend and she wouldn't because she could do work study because she was an American athlete. And it's like, no, you, you can do work study and they can't. Wow. How does that make sense? Yeah. Um, it's been remarkable seeing people f- able to out uh, coaches, uh, representatives, anybody in a power position, an influential position who are expressing these views. Finally, a lot of whom it feels like we've known this about for years, but the, the momentum hasn't been there to really have accountability for the messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I want to quickly ask, going back to your father, that being a police officer, you know, your mother was a teacher, your father's a police officer, the ways that those jobs are now sort of inextricably linked because of people's desire to put more money into one and less into another. How has it been for you? Um, as you mentioned, your, your trepidation around police officers, your understanding of the risk that you are at as a black Muslim woman um, in this country, potentially at the hands of people who are meant to protect you. Um, How do you reconcile that with your view of your own father? Because one of the big conversations now is sort of defund the police, abolish the police, and this push for, you know, a cab, this all cops are bastard, this idea that you can't separate the individual from the system. Um, How do you approach what it seems to me is something you're speaking out on a lot while understanding that personal connection. I, I don't believe that, you know, knowing someone in law enforcement or having a family member in law enforcement should change or, you know, dictate how you feel about defunding the police. And I think that people have linked the term defund and think that, okay, we're just going to disband the police and they won't exist anymore. And that's right. not what, you know, defunding the police means. It's about reducing the $3 billion budget that the Los Angeles de- Police Department, for example, has. When I live in Los Angeles now, and to drive past Tent City and Skid Row and see how many people live on the street is so alarming to me. You know, and and that we have we we pay for police to exist and police these communities, but no one's thought. You know, wouldn't it be great if we provided mental health services for you know other transient community or housing for them or food for them? You know, uh, even when you look at the educational system, when you look at redlining and the way our communities, uh, especially communities of color, um are not given the same amount of money. Our school systems aren't given the same amount of money as, as white school districts um, based on, you know, how much money you make. Why wouldn't we want to fund money into our educational system and not into our, our police department? I don't, that, that escapes me. And to me, anyone with a moral compass would say, I, I think that we should help the homeless population. I think that we should, prov- we should pour money into our mental health services we should pour money into our educational system. If we can 
decrease education budgets, why wouldn't we, why can't we decrease police budget? Right. To me, well, it's, yeah, it, it is. And, and so much of it is being willing to be imaginative about the ways we can change our existing system and not being stuck with the idea that what we have is the only thing, uh, the only way we can do it. My sister's job is um, uh, to end homelessness in Chicago. So it's, a, mm -hmm. it's quite a gig. Um, but, you know, just talking to her about it, giving homes to homeless people is cheaper than leaving them on the streets because the amount of money that you end up spending in medical um, issues in, uh, in crime and anything else because of the desperation of their situation, um, is, is more than actually being able to provide them with, with homes and get them a structure in their life. Um, unfortunately, again, we're, we're so used to, um, policing and, um, and punishing issues that could be solved with, like you said, mental health experts, social workers, and investment in communities, um, putting an end to food deserts, offering up opportunities to work. Um, but so many, so many people are just so used to the way we've always done things. It's very hard for them to imagine changing that. Um, you know, you are part of Share the Mic Now, which was this very cool initiative across social media where prominent uh, black voices would take over the accounts of prominent white celebrities and speak to their fan a base speak to uh, speak from their platform. Um, I actually ended up uh, doing it on my radio show too. Had um, two oh, black God. women from the company come and do a segment for uh, for the show that night because um, mm -hmm. I was so inspired by the message of it. You took over Alex Morgan's account. I wonder, um, and it felt like I felt like it was like doing a, a, a final project for a class. Like, oh, okay, oh, yeah. I have like one day. I have this many posts. <laughs> I have this many Instagram lives. I have this many graphics. I can use. Like, what am I going to do? There's like too much oh, to do. so stressful. So oh, how did you so decide what you wanted stressful. to do? Yeah. Um, it was hard, to be honest. And I think because like, I speak to my little like, I don't know, however many, let's say like for argument's sake, I have like, I don't know, 700,000 followers between like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I feel like I'm speaking to a small room of people in comparison to Alex's like 10 million followers. So for me, immediately it was stressful, but I decided that I would use the opportunity to um, talk about the movement itself. There are a lot of people, even within my own circle of friends who would call me and say, man, I'm, I'm so afraid what's happening right now. You know, there's so much looting going on. And it's like, have you, are we like living in the same place? Are we, are we existing in the same world? Like I'll never understand how people can feel so alarmed by, you know, the looting of target, but not feel as alarmed or even more so alarmed by the looting of black bodies. Like to me, it's, if you seeing Officer Chavin with his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, if that did not move you to being a part of the movement, if that did, if that did not move you and make you feel uncomfortable, it's like, I'm wondering like if you have a heart, right? I'm like, this yeah. man's life was ripped from him. And how could you not see this is a problem? And what I think has come from this movement is the opportunity for all of us to look at not just police violence in a different way, but to realize that people of color are being disproportionately targeted, right? That our lives are not valued in the same way as um, those people who exist in this country and have the privilege of being white.
And so I decided that let me take Alex's platform and use it from the perspective of sport. I would imagine a lot of her followers are sports fans, right? right? So um, when you look at me and my existence in sport, a lot of people see me as being, you know, the first Muslim woman in hijab on Team USA. But most people don't know I'm the first woman of color in my in my uh, weapon, in my sport. So to to say that in 2016, there had never been a woman of color before, that's shocking. And how do we change that, right? For me, fencing has always been a vehicle. Like fencing isn't, fencing isn't like um, my end all be all. Like I don't think that my journey in being an activist and being an agent of change stops because I've retired from sport. I've always felt like, Fencing was a vehicle for me to spread this this message of inclusivity and diversity and us celebrating one another because we're different. And I just wanted to use that in different ways. I wanted to explain why I was marching, like why I was out, you know, on the streets of LA protesting. And I felt like one thing that I wish I had done is talk about my experience of being arrested in LA. Like I went out marching that day. I had no, I had no idea that I was going to be arrested. No idea. Even when the police surrounded me and my friends, I looked at my friend and I said, Hey Dion, I think that they're going to arrest you guys. And he looked at me and he said, no, they're going to arrest us. Mm. Like I, I just never imagined I would be a person who would find myself on that side of the law. And I mean, this was like day two of protesting. When I tell you there wasn't even a like inkling that anybody was rowdy or um, like destroying property. I mean, this was just civil marching, us exercising our like civil liberties. And I was really surprised when they made an announcement that we were going to be arrested. What did and they we say were, they were arresting you for? Unlawful gathering. Huh. Okay. Unlawful gathering. And I mean, this, there were so many young people. I mean, kids. There, were, there was a family there with babies. A woman who had a baby strapped to her chest. And this is like at, I don't know, maybe 9 o'clock at night, 8.30. The sun had just gone down. So it was like maybe 8, 8 8.30. Um, and they had guns pointed at us as they surrounded us in front of city hall in LA. And I mean, when I tell you to have a gun pointed at you is it's like, I kept, I, I kept just looking at the ground. I was, I thought I was having a panic attack. I had my bike with me. This is me just biking through LA, biking behind, you know, protest me seeing a friend never in a million years thought I would be not only surrounded by police who had guns pointed at me. Um, but arrested, they zip tied us, they held us um, sitting. I mean, having to sit on a curb with your hands behind your back is actually a really difficult feat. And I like, thank God my trainer is always having me do squats or so it would be really hard to get up and down off that curb. But from there, we were all transported in prison buses. When I saw the bus, I thought I was getting on like an Amtrak bus, like a, a Greyhound bus. I thought they were going to be like plushy seats. This is how privileged even our minds work. Never occurred to me that I was going to be locked in a cage on a bus. Hmm. No, I mean, I was so shocked and I felt like maybe that was a moment I needed to share. You know, so when I look back on 
Alex's page and these posts an opportunity to talk about how anti-Black racism has become such a, a strong part of, of the fabric in our country that, you know, we don't even know where to start. Right. I, and I'm trying to like just push these different messages through to, to her following in her community that um, I felt like maybe even sharing my experience of being arrested would have been helpful for people to understand that it's not people going out. And it's not necessarily the things you see on television. There are really people protests that exist. And the act of protesting in itself is a right that we have. And the city of LA surprised me because I know a few weeks prior, there were people with guns protesting wearing a mask, protesting the stay at home order. Um, and they didn't arrest anybody that day. So how you don't arrest like mm -hmm. gun toting white men with guns, but you arrest women with children um, who don't have guns, who are not a threat, who are obeying every law, and I still don't believe I broke a, a law by just like being out at night, you know, um, but I don't know. I feel like it's a sign of the times and I'm hoping that this is, I hope this is a moment of change for our country, not just the laws that exist, but also the way that we realize we've been in prison mentally. We've, we've gotten, we've arrived at a point where we feel like the things and the way that, that they exist, that they're equal for everyone. And even as an adult and as someone who is African-American, I'm realizing that they're not. You know, that there are things that are in place and laws that are in place that keep people like me from being able to excel and to have, you know, the same opportunity as maybe one of my white friends. And that is something that I feel like I have to change. Like, that's my life's mission is to help make sure that I leave this world a better place for my niece and my nephews. How long were you uh, at the, did you end up at the police station? Yeah, we ended up at a police station. And another crazy part of the story, when they let you go at four o'clock in the morning, I think it was 3.30, they just, like, they let you out the back door. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. Right. My phone is dead. I had no idea where I was. Um, I know that I'm, like, on the outskirts of downtown, um, so I'm able to just kind of use the little that I know of downtown LA and kind of try to walk back. Um, but I, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, you couldn't pay me to get into an Uber at that point anyway, right. even if my phone was working. So I kind of took my chances. And to be honest, I was petrified the entire walk home. I walked over two miles to get home in the at middle four of the, in the night morning, by myself. in the middle of the night by yourself at four in the morning. Yeah, it's by just, myself. yeah. It that's one of the things that when you think about it, especially like if you're getting arrested for like curfew, <laughs> and then you just mm -hmm. get let out at four in the morning after curfew by yourself. Um, it's and just, they, and the police did say they said you know if you're stopped by the police, show them your summons uh, that you yeah like that you already that you already got caught once. It's uh, it's not like I'm a parking like, ticket. Or, you can't get it doubled up. On. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, or you can help me get home. Exactly. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. 
Oh my gosh. Well, there's so much. I, we didn't get into the Barbie with the hijab. I mean, I can't believe how cool that is. The first Barbie doll fencer that you have. The Luella clothing line that you run with your family that is sort of modest women's fashion stuff that you can wear. Um, your work with the State Department through that ESPNW Women and Girls in Sport Initiative. Uh, so much to get to. So you have to come back some other time uh, so that we can get into all of that. Um, but since we are at the end here, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition, the 10 questions everybody gets. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Ah, oh, man. Uh, anything Drake. Number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Crazy type A work ethic. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Um... My sister passed away last year and I feel like I didn't, I didn't like tell her I loved her enough. Hmm. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? God, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, yes, I play a combat sport. Yeah. But I'm not Your sport playing. has a weapon. Okay. Ibtahaj, don't play coy yeah. with me on this whole, <laughs> I'm so innocent. You spear people. Um, I grew up with, I grew up with a bunch <laughs> of siblings. If those are considered fist fights, then yes. <laughs> uh, number five if you could switch lives with anyone for a day who would it be i could switch lives with anyone for a day huh what an interesting question <laughs> man and i'm like the worst at this kind of stuff i don't know oh maybe my sister because i love my nephew i'd love to like wake up with him next to me he's one and he's, he's my sister yeah That's it's like a just sweet answer him. um yeah i love that uh number six what's the most embarrassed you've ever been uh, the most embarrassed. Um, I would say probably linked to sport, maybe losing a big match. I feel yeah. like when everybody's looking at you and you lose, that's painful. <laughs> Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, what would I most like to improve? I have the worst memory. So I ask God to like, I take <laughs> like all these different pills. Like I'll Google stuff. Like what can I take for better memory of the worst memory? <laughs> I'd like to improve my memory. If you can help, let me know. I feel like there's like, there's that thing called like, um, brain. I can't remember the name. It's some website where you're supposed to be able to do these little like games and things and it will improve your memory. I'll have to look it up. I'll send it to you if I can remember the name of it. Um, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that everybody would have to adhere to? Um, can't be a racist. Oh, that's a good one. Anti-racist. Yeah. Anti-racist. Yeah. That's perfect for right now. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? I don't know. I think it might've been, I think it might've been my arrest. Yeah. Because I, I had a friend who was shot in the face uh, with a rubber bullet. Oh. So when you have these, I mean, people are describing them as like guns with rubber bullets like that's supposed to change the fact that you have a gun pointed in your face and there's this hard object right. um i that was petrifying to me because i thought at any moment someone could shoot so i kept my head down and like my hands over my eyes just mm. to protect my face yeah so yeah. i would say that recently that i can remember yeah for sure uh number 10 what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you loving happy and hopeful. Oh, those are good. Uh, and finally, who should I have on the podcast? Who's someone that I should talk to that you think is fun or interesting or unique? I would say my friend Kendrick Sampson. 
He is an actor, activist. He's I have reached out to him from Insecure. But, yeah. But I will connect you guys. He's yeah, awesome. Please he do. knows a lot more about Yeah, I just like slid into the DMs. I didn't have any good connection. I just yeah. I just slid into the DMs with come do my podcast. Um but yeah, I'll, I'll connect have- you guys on the gram. Yeah, that would be awesome. Very cool. Yeah, um, it was so you. nice to finally have you on here. And I, like I said, we could have talked even longer. You have so much amazing uh, insight. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I've always looked up to you. I love your work. Nice. I feel like you are paving the way for so many female journalists to come after you. So we appreciate you, Sarah Spain. And I remember my first ESPNW summit. And I'm telling you, I'm like a fan. So that's yeah. exciting for me. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me, and I fix it. This week, social media accounts that act like women's sports don't exist. I don't care if you're a 20-year-old intern that's put in charge of something or a seasoned social media vet. It is not that tough to throw a graphic of a WNBA or an NWSL team into a post about local sports team. It is not that difficult to include a few of the greatest female athletes of all time when you're making a poll or a question or a video. The WNBA is a quarter century plus old now. Acting like you can work in sports and not care about it or not know about it isn't acceptable. It's 20 freaking 20 people. Can we can we finally give these women their due and get on board? One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because it might sound silly. Not that big of a deal, right, to care about stuff like, you know, polls or, or online videos. But if we don't demand inclusion on all this stuff, on, on sports sites, on apps, on social media polls then women's leagues and female athletes can continue to be considered second class or not even worth mentioning. And it's the media coverage and the TV time, it's the water cooler debates that drive new fans, that get people interested. You got to get people talking about the best players and the best plays, the games, the stats, the videos. They got to get excited about women's sports and arguing about them the same way they do the men. And that doesn't happen if they never get included. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. NBC Sports Chicago, your poll was stupid. And not inclusive. And the Red Stars and the Sky and the Bandits have been in Chicago for a decade plus. So get your shit together. But also, it's not just you, NBC Sports Chicago. It's ESPN and every other place. And I've had to nudge my own people, too. So we all need to do better, and we need to use our voices, and we need to advocate for these very deserving badass ladies and leagues and let people know that they're around so that they can give them a shot and fall in love with them. Could have been watching NWSL the whole time. Plenty of people didn't know it was on, missing their live sports. We got to work on that. All right, there, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 